part three. I am still Madeline. All right. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to the second part, so I don't know if I misspoke anywhere. But I wanted to sort of keep rolling while I had a sort of train of thought going on. And I, and I guess I want to continue that idea of the value of people who are experiencing health obstacles, especially, obviously, mitochondrial disorders. Um, I didn't lose my value when I became ill. Um, not at 12, not at 15, not in university, not at the second round of mono, not when I started to hell scale deteriorate after I had to stop the intravenous about 17 years ago um, that I had found so effective and that I, I had hoped to actually um, use some of the volunteer activities I was doing at that time to develop into a business and all of that just went away. If you don't give a person with disabilities the money and supports they need to manage their illness, just to manage it, then you remove them from the world, whether that be you remove them from work or you remove them from volunteering, you remove them from their social circles, you remove them and you remove all the talents and abilities that they have. You remove all of their shine. And to live a life without purpose is, I can't begin to explain. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I, I think myself in particular am entirely composed of purpose. And I've spent the past 20 years doing various kinds of community work and building things that never existed before I took them on. And some of that is probably my perspective as a person with a disability. Um, hold on. I, I'm sitting up again, which is stupid. And my back starts screaming at me. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> I have a bunch of, I'm so tired that I don't drink enough. And so I started getting like, you know, just bubbly water, like soda water and having it around my bed. And then I'm too tired to deal with the empties. So <laughs> you just got to hear another one of my management strategies or I don't know, not really managing strategies because my apartment is a bit of a catastrophe. And, um, and I will, I think in this episode, I think I'll talk about uh, PWD on assistance of supports here in British Columbia, Canada, a uh, person with disability um, supports. But um, before I do, should I do it before I, should I talk about, hmm, I'm not sure what way to do it. Maybe I'll break it up because the long and the short of it is the system as it currently sits is impossible to navigate um, on every single angle of my health issue whether it be within the allopathic community, the traditional medicine community, in getting them to understand and recognize and even begin to look at things that work for me, or within the governmental system in which, and, and, and here's the biggest indicator of the problem with um, PWD on support, um, on assistance things, is that the ministry keeps changing its name. It's been the Ministry of Housing and Social Development. It's been the Ministry of Poverty Reduction. And now it's the Social Development and Poverty Reduction Ministry. But that they keep changing the name means that they don't have a clear sense of their own identity. 
and and they don't really understand what it is they're managing. And for reasons I will never begin to understand, we are under that ministry rather than under the Ministry of Health. Here in British Columbia, and I think for most provinces, although in Canada, this medical assistance, so the federal government gives the provinces money um, for um, you know universal health care, and then they disperse it as they see fit. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of oversight and there doesn't seem to be a um an, an, an imperative to adhere to the human rights as dictated by federal law so I, I don't know what the heck to think about that and that's its own you know what the hell kind of a thing but when I first became disabled um I was treated like a criminal I was treated like a criminal. At least back then I had a caseworker, uh, so that was something. But every time I got a new caseworker, they acted like I was up to things, that I was up to shenanigans. So being PWD on assistance, being a person with a disability and being poor automatically seemed to label you as a criminal. Um, now, in my experience of over 20 years of volunteering, um, any population, there's about 3% that's up to shenanigans. I don't care, rich, poor, it doesn't matter, about 3%. And that's my non-scientific personal experience. Um, and so the same, of course, is true for a disabled population. We're not up to shenanigans. We'd like to not die. We'd like to not deteriorate. We'd like to at least have an adequate quality of life and contribute and connect with our communities like anybody else would. But that is an endemic problem within the almost like the bones of that bureaucracy. Um, and, and there are many wonderful individuals within it. But the enculturation, the bias that is almost taught to their employees trickles down and up, actually, trickles up into policy and down into how clients are treated um, to the point that, you know, in the in the current state of affairs, I know many PWD on assistance who won't even ask for supports because it's too humiliating. So what happened about 18 years ago is they took our caseworkers away. And the nice thing was then they stopped auditing us every year, which is incredibly stressful and takes a lot of energy that a person like myself doesn't have. But we also lost access to a person who could help us navigate the paperwork. I used to just bring in prescriptions and they would they would deal with the bibs and bobs. Or if I needed X, they would say, OK, this is what's available. This is what you need to do. And, and they would. But but after that, you call in and you get a different person every single solitary time. And they kept trying to force us to use this online system, not taking into account they weren't giving us any money for the Internet and they weren't giving us any money for devices or that with many health challenges, navigating that system is extremely prohibitive prohibitive. And, and uh, for a person like myself with dyslexia, that cost me a, a lot of energy to navigate all that text. And more than that, it is built to be unnavigatable. I called up and spoke to somebody and was asking for a support. And she says, oh, well, that that um, application form is online. And I said, well, I can't begin to find that. Could you please find that and mail it to me? 15 minutes later, 15 minutes it took her to find the form in a system that they had all been trained on. That's how impenetrable it is. So, 
<laughs> needless to say, um, when I fell apart the way I've been falling apart and I got put in touch with a more senior bureaucrat, again, these are lovely individuals who are doing, doing their best within a system that is built to be prejudiced, that is built to disenfranchise, and that really needs a hardcore shakeup um, and, a, and a rethink about how things are being administered, especially because a lot of these are from an abled perspective and from a perspective that we're all criminals. Anyway, um, she had said, well, you know, there's not a lot of requests in your file. And I said, do you really want to know why? And, and bless her heart, because she said, yes, I really want to know why. I think it's important that we understand you know, how the system is working or not working. And, and so I explained what I've just explained to you. And then I, I gave an example of, it took me eight months, eight different phone calls, a whole bunch of running around and, and, and problems with the providers that they were choosing, or they didn't tell me to choose, um, to get shower supports. And they still didn't cover the sticky mat. So I wouldn't slip and break my neck and end up costing the system dramatically more. And she went, oh, hmm. But, you know, this is just the way it is. I mean, to go from having someone who is your caseworker and so gives a crap about you. Yes, they were busy and yes, they were overworked, but you weren't nobody to them. There was a sense of um, responsibility and there was a sense of accomplishment when they were actually able to do their job. But to now have it be when I call in, I get a different person every single solitary time. The system is built to say no. And it's not even just that. It's that... Um, the doctors who are being asked to do this paperwork are not paid to do it, so they don't want to do it. They don't want us as patients because they're not paid to do any of that. And I've gone in, you know, um, uh, looking for a new GP, being told, oh, yeah, this doctor is accepting patients. And the minute they find out I'm PWD on assistance, they suddenly aren't taking its patients. Oh, they made a mistake. The front desk made a mistake. I've had dentists straight up refuse me because the amount of money that we're afforded to take care of dental issues, keeping in mind the minute you become disabled, dental stuff, um, amplifies in importance because dental health affects general health, general health affects dental health and back and forth that, you know, that, that, uh, that circle of deterioration can go. So it's critical that your oral health be maintained. But, you know, if you're sick, that becomes increasingly difficult to do, especially on, as we're not afforded enough money to have proper nutrition. So I called up a one dentist and the minute he heard I was PWD on assistance, he just straight up said, I don't take PWD on assistance. I didn't know it was illegal for him to say that to me. But anyway, that's what he said. And that's not the first time that's ex happened to me. And I've heard many, many stories. So... I mean, yes, I have a mitochondrial disorder, but I have a mitochondrial disorder and I'm on assistance in a system that regardless of your disability is impossible. Now, now let's add into that the ME, which because of the abdication of care has no category of coverage. So supports are not being covered at, gen uh, at governing body rates to begin with. And then they have this thing called, uh, I can't remember which is called which one. One's like a dietary um, supplement where you get like more money for food, but it's $125. Now, 
the that, that hospital I told you about, they wanted me to have a special diet of pre-made meals that was going to cost between $450 and $900 a month, depending on which of the providers that they they show listed and depending on whether I opted to have three meals a day or one meal or, or whatever. So this $125 doesn't even begin to touch. I also have celiac disease. The $125 alone might accommodate the celiac disease and that's it. <laughs> and then the other thing is like, um, a kind of supplement, you know, for, for like pills or like vitamin supplements, that kind of thing. Um, and that's $40. And there is not one of the things that they suggested at that hospital that cost $40. As far as I can remember, there's not even one. So that doesn't begin to address what a person like myself needs. Um, and so in the, ad, the advocates in their recent, you know, connection with the SDPR, Social Development of Poverty Reduction and the Ministry of Health, um, you know, they were given to understand that one of the problems is there isn't even a category of coverage for mitochondrial disorder, for post-viral syndrome. So that includes then fibro and multiple chemical sensitivities and immune deficiencies. There's no category of coverage for any of those. And that's in the face of the fact that we have all these COVID-19 long haulers that are putting the lie to this idea that, um, ME, CFS is psychological. It's biochemical for the love of God. Um, but there's still not a category of coverage. And the social development and poverty reduction, what they do cover is dictated by the Ministry of Health. So it's administrated by the social development and poverty reduction, but dictated by the Ministry of Health, who leans into allopathic medicine like it's a one-party system. And that system, by and large, to this day, is abdicating on these diseases. So there's not a fix going on for it, none that I can see. And we, as persons with disabilities, are falling into a grand canyon in between these two ministries. I recently had my MLA's office reach out to have my file looked at again by the Ministry of Health. And the responses they came back with is one, that $23 thing I talked to you about, which if you don't cover it, governing body rates. And we are a $1,000 less than a healthy person's monthly minimum wage with our base expenses dramatically more than a healthy person's. How the hell are we filling in the gap of that? But she didn't even know what that was. They hadn't even explained that to my MLA's office staffer. And then the other thing is called a request for last resort or, or something like that. And I'm looking at it thinking all of these things listed here are pharmaceuticals. And so, A, you're not going to pay a doctor to fill this out. And I talked to someone at the SDPR who told me that because they didn't know anything about it because it's Ministry of Health. And so she did an inv investigation and she said, well, you actually have to fill out a different form for every single solitary thing you're doing. So, I mean, that's somewhere between 50 and 100 forms I would have to fill out at this point. And it can't be me that fills it out. It has to be the doctor. So, A, it has to be the naturopath because the allopathic doctor knows nothing about this. And I'm very blessed right now and that I have a nurse practitioner who is at least open and curious, but who freely admits she hasn't been trained in this at all because none of them have. And the ones who think they have been are actually taught in prejudice. I mean, I had a GP not a year ago, look me dead in the eye, you know, who totally felt he understood my diseases and said, oh, your illnesses are subjective. And I just thought, 
what the hell? And, and I don't have him as my practitioner anymore. But imagine if I was at the start of my disease. Imagine if I believed him. I know it's not that because 40 years, 40 years of dealing with this nonsense. So uh, the frustration of the only person who could possibly fill it out and explain what I'm doing is a naturopath. Naturopaths are not covered under like the, the health in any way, shape or form. And even if they were, the paperwork is still not paid for. And as far as I can figure out, this will be a complete waste of time because it seems to be for pharmaceuticals alone. Chemicals that my multiple chemical sensitivities freak out about. Now, and, and keep in mind that this is for some natural supplements as well. I mean, they're chemicals as well. This is not all benign and kittens and bunnies and unicorns. I just react less poorly to them and often dramatically better. So this is just a small piece of the madness that I'm dealing with. <laughs> it's actually a little worse right now because persons with disabilities, we have special transport here called Handy Dart. And they're now putting in a new kind of a tap card. We're calling it a compass card that doesn't actually inter interact with the larger TransLink system. So you need two of them. And anyway, there's there's a whole rigmarole between like it's all the government, but they've segmented themselves in a way that they're not communicating with each other. So this new system they're going to put in is going to cost their their most poverty stricken disabled persons much more money and is going to be much harder to navigate um, and is is going to involve us having to have technology to put money on the card or the energy to go to a kiosk to put money on the card. I mean, for myself, I tend to, you know, go between these two systems of transport because Handy Dart has a half hour pickup window. And as a person with a mitochondrial disorder, that half an hour out of my hour and a half energy envelope is a massive, massive mistake that that's not good at all. But as I've deteriorated. I've struggled with public transport because I, I don't have the energy that it takes to walk the six blocks to the bus. Um, and I do get shaken quite profoundly on, on regular transport. But, but admittedly, on this special transport, I'm getting shaken far more than I should be shaken. When, um, when you look at the pain profile of both the mitochondrial disorder and the fibromyalgia and how they interact with each other. So for me, I'm, I can't just do, you know, how it works right now is they have a certain amount they automatically pay onto the TransLink, the general transit card, and I'm paying out of pocket for the handy dart, which is costing me a whole bunch of money I don't have. I'm not using the public transport to its full effect. And rather than let me just use that compass card on both systems, because they're all government systems, they're all ultimately part of TransLink, because Handy Dart isn't a part of the SDPR. Somehow this is not happening. And, and I have put all this forward, so perhaps this will change. But this is the measure of a logic. And this is the measure that a person like myself, who doesn't have the energy to be navigating any of this or be wasting on any of this conversations, has to do. Because the people who are putting these systems in place are all abled and thinking like abled people who have way more money than we do. And nobody's thinking through any of this because we don't have something that sits in the middle between SDPR and health that deals with us alone. So... 
<laughs> Welcome to the hellscape of the bureaucracy. Welcome to why I've been deteriorating 101. Because this is a system that guarantees my deterioration between the money, between the lack of supports, between the difficulty of navigating the system. I even had a doctor when I was trying to explain how difficult it was for me to get something um, who said, you know, well, I mean, the government can't pay for everything. And I'm thinking the government is paying for hardly anything that I need, especially with the abdication on my diseases. And it was a year later that it occurred to me to tell her how much money I was being given. And her eyes turned into saucers, huge saucers. And so then I started telling other doctors and none of them knew how much money I was getting. And I thought, but why, why don't you know? If you have a PWD on assistance patient, why don't you know how much money that we have? So you are making suggestions to us that we can't possibly afford. Like I had a rheumatologist like, and a foot surgeon all want me to do this special prescription version of Voltaren that was going to cost like, I think something like 50 or $80 a tube and you had to use it up in three weeks. And I'm like, I can't afford that. I can't begin to afford that. And it's not covered. And yet it's a prescription given to me by multiple doctors. So I don't know. And then that same um, physician and, and a wonderful person, like, please understand, these are wonderful people, good doctors who, for whatever reason, haven't chosen to ask these questions um, and so haven't chosen to kick up a stink about the lack of supports that we have. And so then she started to understand some of the supports that I was fighting for, fighting to get. And, and of course, she had other patients who needed those supports. So I get this phone call from her front desk saying like, um, so how does a person actually get that support? So I have to talk her office through how to help another one of her patients get a critical support. And I even said to this physician, like, why don't you, next time you have one of your doctory conferences, ask somebody from the SDPR to come and explain how to, like, what supports are available and how to ask for them. And I was in a webinar for disabled persons and a physician in there was saying that the difference between a doctor who knows what supports are available and how to ask for them and a doctor who doesn't, like the outcome of your PWD on assistance patients is dramatically different. But ultimately, the doctor shouldn't be asked to do these things um, and, and, and nor the service providers in no small part because, and this just happened recently, um, Often the bureaucracy will change the requirements of how the mechanics of the paperwork will need to be filled out. And sometimes it's just the silliest things, but they don't tell the service provider or the physicians. And so suddenly those patients get sent through what they call the appeals process. Now, here's how nutty that process is. Um, you have, to, I think it's 10 days, um, 10 days from the date they, they date the letter not the date you receive the letter, um, you have to fill out all this paperwork. So I got sent through the appeals. Um, I got sent through the appeals for a support that was named by its medical name, not its vernacular name. And so because whoever looked at it um, obviously doesn't have medical training and for whatever reason wasn't willing to reach out to somebody with medical training or, you know, Google, 
they sent me through the appeals process. So with a mitochondrial disorder, mobility issues, and dramatic pain, I have, oh, days, just like scarce days to fill out this paperwork. And I have to go back to the physician who originally did his part of it and ask him to do it again. And he's not being paid for either of these things. And he's looking at me like, why am I saying vernacular name as well as medical name? Why am I not just saying medical name? And it's like, I don't know. And then I have to get this long treaties of why I need it. And then finally we got it covered. Um, and the worst thing was it didn't even work, but I made myself so sick. I mean, so sick running around doing this. And I got responses like, you know, I said about the deadline, like, you know, can you extend it? And it's all this paperwork that goes into extending the deadline, which I don't have energy for. I don't have energy for any of this paperwork. You are making a hellscape out of an already problematic illness by, by asking me to expend energy in ways that I am not physically up for it. Now the dyslexia, I have dyslexia and I haven't heard a lot of conversations about how mitochondrial disorder impacts dyslexia. So if we have any dyslexic listeners, um, dyslexia costs the brain five times more energy than a healthy person to read. But for me, I know it how I process everything is affected. So I think my brain just in general uses significantly more energy. Um, but when I, I attempt to do reading and writing, especially in my current deteriorated state, I can become actively nauseous. So fibromyalgia is a kind of hyperactivity of the brain. And dyslexia is also a kind of the brain is much more active than a neurotypical brain. And when you slam those two into each other, oh my God, does it turn up the um, pain factor. Now, pain eats energy. So not only is reading eating energy, you've now amplified the fibromyalgia to eat energy. I honestly, I can't win for losing. At the very beginning of the second round of mono, I lost the ability to long form read. I haven't been able to read novels since the second round of, novel, uh, of mono. I can't make sense of them at all. So the more the system asks me to contend with paperwork that I can't contend with, the sicker I become. Now it's wonderful that I now have a caseworker and we are working to reduce the amount of textual communication I have to do. But even so, within the advocation work I have to do um, on my, uh, to, to save my life, to stay alive, I have to deal with text. And it makes me sick at the, I don't know if everybody's aware, but at that, that hospital, they talked about there are three kinds of energy. There's cognitive energy, there's emotional energy, and there's physical energy. And you will have a certain allotment for each one. And you cannot borrow from one to do another. That's how they're, it's strictly an education program. So this was part of their education. And, and I have to admit that I do feel that that is accurate. I end up talking about friendship gardening. Friendships have to be mutual. It does cost me energy to spend time with my friends. But if you don't have any friends, one of the best ways to kill a person is to isolate them. That's why ostracizing used to be you know, a, a hardcore kind of punishment in many small communities. Um, they've done studies on uh, prisoners who are put into solitary confinement. And within as little as, I believe it's 48 hours, um, you see, you can see on an MRI alterations in brain function. So the isolation that I'm working under being more and more immobilized in my bed 
is profoundly unhealthy. And with my Nerdfighter community and my other online fan communities, most of those are textual, they're chat-based, chat room-based. And so I, I become more and more isolated from them as well. I mean, I'm even struggling watching TV shows. I'm having to watch either TV shows I don't care at all about, so it doesn't matter what's going on, or ones I've watched before, because they don't have the cognitive power to parse a new show. That's how much I'm falling apart. And yet, within all of that, I have to continue to do my volunteer activities, or why am I dealing with this measure of of pain, to be cycling between an eight and a 10 most of the time, to have movement escalate me up to a 10 where your whole body feels electrocuted by the fibro or where your whole body is in this muscle burn from the mitochondrial disorder. If I don't have purpose, then what the hell am I doing and why am I doing it? And so I carry on with it. And it costs me energy I don't have, but the benefits, the benefits that I get from it and from the knowledge that I am very much a part of my community, I think that's something that I'll talk about in the next, in the next segment. <laughs> 